0: All right, welcome to Simper Sometimes with Benny. Um, so I told you guys yesterday on my Facebook that I was actually going to be, you know, having a, a Lieutenant Colonel on with us to just kind of start talking about, you know, the the the, the burden of leadership um, and just the way that things are differently, um, the, the different feelings that they might have, and also just how it is when you know ish being the one to issue the orders. Um, so we we have. Lieutenant Colonel here with us. Um, I don't want to mispronounce your name. Um, so <laughs> if, if you can just go ahead and introduce yourself, I'd appreciate that. Sure.
1: So- well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is an honor. Um, you know, having recently retired back in May uh, and navigating through the uh, through the initial process of, of making that initial transition into the civilian world. Um, you know, I'll start by giving you my background. Uh, first, on, first thing's first for everybody that's out there. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Alton A. Worthen, uh, retired, retired, um, I uh, I go by Alex. Um, So um, long story there, long, short story. Uh, Dad wanted me to be a junior. Mom wanted me wanted me to be an Alexander. So they compromised. So I became Allison Alexander and I've gone by Alex uh, the majority of my life. So. uh, So there's that. Um, 24 years in the Marine Corps as an infantry officer, Uh, graduated from Norwich University back in 1997 uh for those that don't know north university is a the oldest private military college in the country the birthplace of rotc and uh, i'll be heading up there this week
2: uh yeah
1: yep yep, up in vermont up in up in beautiful northfield vermont smack dab in the city of the state uh so i'll be heading up there and um you know taking my girlfriend and uh, and her son up there this weekend for the or this week uh for the first time so very excited about that and uh get the opportunity to see some people up there i have not seen in a very long time so
2: um
1: a little bit about me um infantry officer by trade um but but had a very diverse career and i was blessed to have done a lot of different things um you know uh, commanded at various levels um did just about everything you can do in the infantry um taught both resident and non-resident uh parallel with my career the majority of my career so had the opportunity to educate and train a, um, uh, a an entire generation of young captains and seeing them grow up to be majors and lieutenant colonels now is, is pretty exciting. Wow. Uh-huh. Um, did not plan on making the Marine Corps a career. Um, you know, I was going to do my four and a half years and, and uh, get out and do other things. Um, but there were two things that happened. Um, number one, I got orders to MCRD San Diego and was a serious commander, a company commander out there, and absolutely loved it. You know, serious command is hit and miss with people. It all is literally really just determined by the people that you end up working with. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, I end up working with a great group of officers, some outstanding drill instructors, and, um, you know, just loved it. The hours were insane. Um, you know, life in that, that recruit depot fishbowl uh, can be pretty intense, um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it was really my B-billet. Uh, they kept me in the Marine Corps more than more than my lieutenant time in the fleet, uh, and then the second thing that happened was 9/11. Uh, 9/11 happened while I was on my B billet, um, knew knowing the country was at war. Um, I knew <coughs> my personality, and and you know everybody serves in their own way. You know, so I have nothing against mm-hmm. you know the guys and gals that were in at the time, made it to the end of their contracts, and and then walked away to do other things. But I knew myself well enough to know that. If I walked away then while the country was at war, um, there was a part of me that, that never would have, for lack of a better term, forgiven myself for that. So, um, so when 9 11 happened, I knew I was going to stay in and at least do my part. And then once I got, you know, because again, one of the things we, we forgot about 9 11 here on the 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary of 9 11, you know, that day we had no idea who we were going to be fighting against, you know, um, we had an inclination. It was Al Qaeda. We had an inclination. It was bin Laden. But it was actually several days before we we could really draw a circle and say, OK, this this is where we're going, you know, and then we're going to go to Afghanistan. And of course, in Iraq, uh, kicked off after that, a few years after that. So, you know, I knew that I wanted to stay in and do my part uh, and then reevaluate uh, afterwards. So um mm-hmm. grew up as an army brat. Um, my dad. Uh, had a very interesting army career he was in the army's navy uh, which means I had a very unusual army brat oh yeah <laughs> the army has a, a huge maritime wing logistics wing that most people don't know exists uh, at one time the army was able to brag that they had more ships uh, than the navy um, so mm-hmm. the vast majority of that occupational field is is down in um, Hampton Roads Virginia so that's where I I you know Grew up. I went to middle school and high school there. Never moved. My dad retired out of there, um, you know, and, and settled in the area until he uh, until he passed away a few years ago. Um, so, grew up in an in an army family. Um, you know, did sea uh, cadets and ROTC. You know, through middle school and high school, um, went to a military college, uh, and then did 24 years on uh, of active duty. So, the military has been. A part of my life my entire life um i am both you know very thankful of the experience thankful for what i gained and what i learned but also very eager to go do other things <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask yeah, you. That, so. like,
0: <laughs> with everything going oh, yeah. on you know from if if <clears throat> if it started off as a young child all the way through now like how does it feel no longer you know being in the marine corps like I, it's got to be very different to not be on that side of the fence anymore it's
1: it's mixed feelings um I had a uh a brief uh stint as a defense contractor um I recently got a job working with another company um and it was you know working in the pentagon every day it reminded me on a daily basis of everything I loved about the military and everything I hated about it everything I miss And everything that you know motivated me to say it's time to leave.
0: (laughs) But so (laughs) so. before we get into the what made you leave, um, so while one just just so I have an understanding, and you're 24 years in the Marine Corps, um, did you deploy a lot? Did you, especially as an infantry officer, I can imagine that you probably quite a bit. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that if you don't mind, sir?
1: Sure. You know, I was I was blessed in the sense that. I got to see the Marine Corps pre 9-11, post 9-11, and a glimpse of the Marine Corps as we we're trying to make, you know, the transition away from uh, the global war on terrorism to pivot back towards our traditional missions in the Pacific. So I got to see the Marine Corps through three different phases. So as a lieutenant, uh, did, you know, UDP to Okinawa, um, you know, from Okinawa, did the entire Pacific Rim, went to Australia, Thailand, Korea, uh, Japan, mainland Japan, and Okinawa. Uh, Guam, you know, bounced all over the place and uh, and did sort of that traditional late 90s UDP deployment from Iraq, uh, came back uh, and then had the unique opportunity to do a deployment called UNITAS, uh, which is which now I think belongs to the reserves if they still do it. And that was a deployment down in South America.
0: Yes, I, I believe I believe they do because I think I heard, I've i heard that before yeah. and a friend of mine just got back from a UDP and I'm pretty sure that's what it, what it sounded like that
1: yeah and it, it was it was a very unique opportunity. one heck of an adventure. Um, we deployed on the last LST on the East Coast, the USS Lamore County <laughs> uh, um, and one of the last Navy ships to ever deploy and not come back from deployment. and I'll tell you that whole story that was that was an adventure. Um, spent some extended time in Columbia, uh, working with the Columbia Marines and also uh, cut our teeth down there doing some Some counter drug uh, and counter narcotics operations. Oh, wow. Uh, At a time, again, in the late 90s, Colombia was a very different place than it is now. Um, And saw and experienced some things down in South America that I will never forget. Um, You know, then we bounced from Colombia. We went to Ecuador, Peru, um, spent some extended time in Chile. Got to go to the uh, Chilean Mountain Warfare Center while I was down there, which was amazing. Oh, wow. Uh, Went over to Argentina. uh, Had the best steak I've ever had in my life. Uh, in Argentina, uh, they then went up to Brazil, uh, and in Puerto Rico. So, and I want to say that on odd years back then, the UNITOS deployments also went to Africa. Uh, so our deployment didn't go to Africa. We focused primarily on uh, South American operations.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, while we were conducting UNITOS, um, I want to say the USS Cole was attacked. Uh, so... So yeah, so we had that going on, you know, which was just something that really sticks out in my memory really well. Um, <clears throat> and um, as we were making the transit back home is when you had all, I mean, no one remembers this anymore. That's when you had all the controversy surrounding the, um, uh, the 2000 elections, you know, with the, you know, with the hanging chads in Florida and all the rest of that. So uh, to tell you the story about the USS Lamore County, uh the moore county last LSD on the east coast uh not a very good crew <laughs> definitely not the, the navy's varsity uh pretty interesting you know that was kind of like my first introduction to the gator navy and i was like huh okay this is interesting um they ran aground off the coast of chile during uh some joint combined operations with the chilean navy and some other south american navies um and they damaged the ship so badly that they couldn't bring it back to the States. So they had to oh, wow. uh, tow the ship into port, docked <laughs> there, strip everything off of value, and then they sank it the next year, the next unit you know, toss. They just had a, a giant sink X, shot a bunch of missiles at it and sank it. So the ship never made it back. Uh, <laughs> but they, And they had to scramble uh, a ship called the Tortuga, which I believe now is actually stationed out in the Pacific. Uh, and and LSD, the Tortuga, that had just gotten back from deployment, they were like, hey, welcome home, get back on the ship, go down to South America, go pick up these Marines and and complete the rest of the deployment. Um, But they were awesome. You know, we expected them, considering the circumstances to be, um, you know, we we anticipated that they weren't going to be happy to see us. And with our last experience, with our last Navy crew, we already had kind of an image of what we thought the Gator Navy was. The Tortuga showed up and was a completely different experience. Great ship, great crew, uh, gained a lot of respect for the Navy and for the amphibious community. When when they're well run and well led, you know, again, the perspective of what, you know, a, a good Navy crew looks like under those circumstances. And we're, they were actually pretty excited to come down there and pick us up because getting the chance to go to South America uh, is something that didn't happen very often in the Navy back then. So they were actually pretty motivated to get down there and, and be a part of the, uh, the deployment. So, uh, did a unit sauce. <clears throat> then, um, did my B billet, went to MCRD San Diego, uh, did the normal three year, three years there, uh, went out to Oklahoma for six months, uh, went out to the field artillery career captain's course it was one of the few Marine grunts that had the opportunity to go out and do that during that time, learned about artillery fire support, uh, for six months, um, uh, you know, got a great education from that school. Uh, and then from there, went and checked into uh, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. Deployed with the 15th Mew. Uh, I had the, uh, the H&S company uh, under the BLT for that deployment. Uh, and that deployment was extremely dynamic. Um, we did a little bit of everything. You know, The, the uh, big tsunami <clears throat> back in 2004, 2005 hit Indonesia and Sri Lanka. So um, we went and did. Um, tsunami relief, which is something I'll never forget. Um, then went and did uh, counter piracy operations in the Arabian Gulf. Uh, then went into Iraq, um, and we on the ground in Iraq for about two, two and a half months. Uh, got back on the ship. This was the uh, the ill fated Bonham Richard. Um, you know, the ship that just suffered that that terrible yard fire, you um, know, uh, last year. Yeah. And um, so, got back on the uh, you know uh, big number six, and we were slated to go home. And then one night, we felt the ship make a right turn, and we were heading south. And we knew that we had changed direction, and you know got spun up to go into Somalia. And at the last second, that mission was was cut off for reasons that were never explained to us. So then we took a left turn uh, and started heading towards India. And uh, finished up the uh, deployment with uh, some nice libo in Australia and Hawaii, and then uh, got back home to Camp Pendleton. And then six months later, I was on a plane heading back to, uh, to Camp Fallujah, uh, where I had Weapons Company 1-1, where we were reconfigured as a mobile assault company. Um Um, got back and uh, let me know it's, it's telling me my internet connection is unstable so uh, yeah I'm- the last thing uh, I heard
0: was that you had just gotten to Fallujah
2: okay alright so let me my signal here hold on Give me a minute, bear with me here. I'm gonna try to see if it works better off my... I apologize. It's all right, sir. It's can the, you hear the, me now?
0: Yeah, I can hear you now, sir. It's the nature of the beast.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to leave it alone for now, and then if um, if I continue to have some issues, I might try to transition over to my hotspot, kind of go from
0: there. Okay. Understood. Sir.
1: Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, operated out of um, primarily around Karma, uh, the town of Karma. North east of Fallujah, northeast of Camp Fallujah. <clears throat> uh, operated there for seven months. Um, and what, what year uh, was this, sir? That would have been 2005 to 2006. Um, so the, the 15th MU deployment overlapped between 2004 and 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, that deployment with 1 1 overlapped between 2005 and 2006. Uh, so, uh, cut my teeth there, uh, as the company commander on the ground and then, you know, and then, uh, came back and, uh, volunteered to be the regimental headquarters company commander, uh, did that for a year for first Marines. Um, so I pretty much spent all my time in the fleet as a captain and company command. I had three different company commands back to back. So an HS company on deployment, a weapons company on deployment. Uh, And then, you know, the headquarters company uh, back in Camp Horno Uh, from there, went to uh, the basic school uh, to to teach lieutenants Uh, first year, there, operations officer. Uh, uh, Second year had the opportunity to be what what they used to call the maneuver section. head. so I was in charge of all the actual exercises uh, that the lieutenants run through when they go through the basic officer course. And in my third year there, I got to be a company commander twice. Uh, with both Alpha and Charlie companies, which was you know, a great experience. Uh, after that, went out to the stumps, turned out Palms, was the XO-27 for a year. Um, <clears throat> then got the surprise of my life, uh, literally 96 hours before the uh, BOT was going to deploy to Okinawa to be a part of the 31st MU, they were doing MUs from the desert during that time. Um, got told by the regimental commander um, General General Renforth uh, tapped me on the shoulder, and said, "Hey, 37 is going back to Afghanistan. 37 uh, is woefully short personnel and experienced officers. You've done a great job as an XO, uh, but I need you to go to 37, and you're going to go and have to go Afghanistan. So watched 27 get on the buses and go off to March Air Force Base, and then immediately checked into 37 to take over their advisor team." Um, served in that role for a year, deployed with them to Afghanistan uh, and, and then came back and was the XO for 3-7 uh, for a few months uh, until the Marine Corps figured out what they what they wanted to do for me uh, or do with me. Um, got selected for lieutenant colonel while I was out in the desert and so um, they had me helped stand up a logistics school out there called McLOG, which was uh, right next door to uh, the Marine Corps Tactical Operations Group, which had been stood up a few years prior to that. So the logistics community got there. So I was a lone grunt at McLOG for a year, uh, helping get that school stood up, which was was also an amazing uh, experience. Uh, From there, uh, came back east again, to the expeditionary warfare school uh, as a major worked there for three years uh, was a division head uh, was the chief of curriculum and then was the deputy director uh, so those are my three roles there um you know while at ews um and also while at tbs and i, I didn't mention this before uh you know tad all over the world you know one of the things that um you know, we do quite a bit in the Marine Corps that doesn't get enough attention is, you know, we're consistently trying to help other militaries uh, from around the world and our sister services um, uh, either improve upon or um, get their, their own PME up and running. So yeah. Yeah. You know, that was something I did quite a bit. So, you know, I, I traveled pretty extensively even during those two B-billets at the basic school and at EWS, Going and taking a look at how other people did their training, um, trying to help the Afghans again and the Iraqis, you know, uh, stand up their schools and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. did quite a bit of that in both those roles, both as you know, as as a you know as a major and lieutenant colonel, um, you know, both the basic school and and EWS. So I think if you added up all the time I spent TAD in the Marine Corps, it probably would equate to. More, if not more, time than I actually spent deployed. <laughs> so, yeah, <clears throat> one of my big regrets in life is that I didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't keep track of all my frequent flyer miles because it, it would be pretty, pretty extensive. So, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but uh, then got another surprise. My uh, one of my mentors and former bosses, uh, now Major General Furness um, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, uh, need a man of your talent and experience to come up to legislative affairs. Uh, so for four years I did, uh, legislative affairs, uh, for the Marine Corps timing wise, it fit in well. Uh, unfortunately I was going through divorce. Uh, so, um, deferred the opportunity for command, um, as a result, because, you know, I had to make the strategic decision to stay close to home and stay close to my kids um through the divorce process and you know a divorce is not something i would wish on anyone um but those of your listeners who've been through it they um, you know particularly the dads uh understand and it's not easy on on the ladies either and i don't want to imply that it is but uh you know it's a terrible process and it's hard on kids if you have kids and at that point i realized that even if i had gotten command um my ability to, to concentrate on, you know, for two years and give that the, uh, the focus, uh, that it, um, hey, yeah that's, uh, Dad. that's my, uh, Dad. my girlfriend's son coming to say hi. He just came back from his dad's and so, Hey buddy, how's it going? Right. Hey, how's it going? All right.
2: All
1: okay. All right. Let me finish this up. Okay. No, then I'll play with you. All right. So, um, So um, made the decision to defer command and stay in the national capital region. Um, I knew that meant that I was not going to go any further in the Marine Corps that I was, you know, um, you know, in in the infantry career track. (coughs) If you don't take command, uh, it's it's almost impossible to make colonel. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, with the amount of time I'd already spent away from my kids, um, you know, Having the opportunity to be close to them while going through that process, you know, for me, it was it was just the the right decision to make. So but I got the opportunity to spend an extended amount of time in legislative affairs as a result, did four years in that billet, Um, did a little bit of everything there, got uh, spent two years on Capitol Hill and two years in the Pentagon. So I got to see how things are run at the strategic level in terms of congressional engagement from uh, from a uniform perspective. Um, But also got to be directly embedded with Congress, um, both as a liaison and as a fellow and had the opportunity to um, be a fly on the wall, really, Um, because there were just periods of time working with Congress that I was just Alex and nobody knew I was a Marine. They just thought I was a regular Hill staff, which was awesome Um, because you got to see how the process really works, at least on the congressional side in terms of the tough decisions they have to make and all the compromises they have to make trying to get legislation done, which is exactly what the founding fathers wanted. And it was um, eye-opening experience an experience I wish more Americans got the chance to see because, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we live in a time of, of political polarity. But what I would tell folks is that the vast majority of, you know, representatives and senators, whether they be Democrat or Republican, just get up every day and try to do the best they can for the people who elected them. Um, and that often gets gets lost in all the rancor. Um, they also, the vast majority of them are really good friends. And that was something that I, I, I thought it was unfortunate that we don't get to see that aspect of it, to see two people who are diametrically opposed politically um, be the best of friends. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. something again, I, I really wish more Americans got to got to see, uh, especially right now, mm. uh, <clears throat> finished up my career uh, with the safety division. Um, as traditionally, what happens when you get an opportunity to do a fellowship is you, you give the Marine Corps a two year payback because of my seniority. I didn't have to do that. I could have retired out of legislative affairs. But in good faith, I said, hey, you guys hooked me up with an incredible opportunity. Let me do what I'm supposed to do with this and take that knowledge back and use it strategically for the Marine Corps for two years, as any other fellow would. Um, Didn't quite get the orders that I expected to be tied back to that experience, but um, got to do something rewarding nonetheless. And that's be the chief of uh, ground safety for for two years. And also got to do a joint job where I was the um, chairman of the joint tactical vehicle safety working group. Uh, again, another billet that before COVID uh, required an extensive amount of travel, which was there was a lot of goodness in that as well. So. Um, <clears throat> so that's how I finished out my career, um, retired or had my retirement ceremony on May 7th, um, went on terminal leave and officially retired on August 1st. Um, and like I said, you know, working through the, um, the challenges to come with the initial transition. Uh, just landed an incredible job opportunity. So I'm very excited about that, um, you know, and, and eager to get uh, get going on my second career. So that's that's my career in a nutshell. Maybe not as, you know, um, been all over the world
2: yeah. multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: awesome. Like I said, got, got to see the Marine Corps in three distinct phases. Uh, you know, that pre-9-11 Marine Corps, um, 18 months between, you know, between deployments traditionally. Um, UDPs, Mews, Unitosses, Markots, you know, all the rest of that stuff we used to do back in the day before the towers came down, then got to see the Marine Corps go to war, uh, then got to see on the back end of my career, the Marine Corps transition away from what we had been doing out in the desert and in Central Asia and, and, and refocus on our traditional roles. And seeing it from a safety perspective was also pretty fascinating because, again, you get to see the entire enterprise and how it works and sometimes doesn't mm-hmm. work. Um, you know, so that was, uh, you know, I had a great career, you know, proud of my career. Um, I made some, some poor, uh, personal decisions as a young man, um, but got two beautiful kids out of the deal and, uh, you know, uh, you make grown up decisions they have grown up consequences. So, uh, Didn't get a chance to pin on Colonel, but that was, again, a a decision that I I made that was uh, said, hey, you know, you only get to be a dad once. You know, Um, one of the things I remember very distinctly when I was a young lieutenant, um, I got mentored by a captain who had recently got out after eight years. And I asked him, hey, you know, why did you get out? And he said, hey, you know, the Marine Corps kicks everybody out at some point. Even the mighty commandant gets tapped on the shoulder and, and gets told it's time to leave. Uh, but you only get to be a family man once. You know, the Marine Corps is a train. It's going to keep on rolling. And if you don't take care of your priorities, by the time the Marine Corps kicks you off the train, you're going to find you don't have a whole lot left. And so um, that advice resonated with me. And when it came time to make a decision between the next promotion and, and being a good dad under some very tough circumstances, for me, it was an easy decision. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, so one of the questions that I, I think I want to ask you is, so on my show, I've, I've talked a lot about like, <clears throat> like, um, like alcoholism and stuff like that. Like I've never, like, is that something that maybe that you've, you, cause you've seen it from the top down and and, sure. and also you've probably seen it laterally as well. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, cause you, is it something that maybe you've dealt with at all? And then how did you get through it? And then also, like, what are your thoughts on how we can help sure. those younger Marines sure. get? Well, let it me.
1: Or... Um, you know, I, I have a, a a unfortunately not not on a more personal level, um, but I have a lot of experience with substance abuse and people who have who have dealt with it. You know, my father was an alcoholic. Um, you know, he. Uh, you know, the bottle is what eventually beat him. You know, at the end of the day, and then he was a he was a functioning alcoholic um i didn't even know he had a drinking problem until i was an adult um so and he had, as a dad you know did a very good job his kids my mom knew <coughs> and people who knew him well knew that he had a drinking problem uh, which again i did not discover until i was older um and then his the severity of his uh, sorry if i'm coming in unstable again
2: can you hear me? Yeah, I got you yeah. Okay. Uh
1: so dealing with that and uh as a as a young um adult, you know, young officer, and then seeing my father struggle through that, which is you know, I idolized my dad. So seeing him deal with addiction was something that was really hard while I was also dealing with my own. Uh, issues and own post-deployment demons. Um, And what I found out from talking to him was that a lot of his problems were unresolved issues from his time in Vietnam. Um, So, you know, with veterans now and service members now, even though we could always do better, there's a lot of support that we offer for, you know, our, our servicemen and women who come back from deployment and who are struggling with what they dealt with and what they saw you know, previous generations, it was, hey, you know, welcome home, get a job, man up, you know, um, deal with it and move forward. But you know, their only support network was each other. And yeah. with the Vietnam yeah, yeah. events, it was particularly hard because they didn't come back as units. They came back as individuals. And so my dad's first uh, deployment to Vietnam, <coughs> he was a draftee. So He went into the army as an individual, came out of the army as an individual. The army was like, hey, thanks for your service. Kicked him back down to a segregated South. Uh, So he's dealing, that was when all the, his problems really started with alcohol. And this was as a young man back in the late 1960s, long before I came know, long before he even met my mom, Um, struggled, rejoined the army, uh, on a promise that he would not be sent back to Vietnam and it got sent back to Vietnam. <laughs> so, which again, went through the same thing. When as an individual, came back as an individual. So that whole support network of, you know, previous uh, veterans, you know, maybe they'd come home as a unit or come home in groups or come home in cohorts, you know, the, the Vietnam vets didn't have that. <laughs> and so that was, you know, why, why so many of them, I think kind of struggled. Was because you know they went in time straight from the battlefield to back home. You know the movie, um, even though it's 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 uh, sensationalized. You know the old movie, The Deer Hunter, with uh, with Robert mm-hmm. De Niro,
2: and yeah. uh, what, yeah.
1: uh, kind of illustrates that. You know where they would literally go from the battlefield and then be home. You know a week later. Yeah. You know, and with no tra- you know, no transition. No, hey. Thanks for your service. Here's your DD 214. Good luck, you know? And, uh, so that was tough, you know? And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's where the, the genesis of his drinking problem, uh, I had a platoon Sergeant, um, my second platoon Sergeant, um, had a severe drinking problem, um, and was in denial about it. Um, You know, ended up, you know, he was my platoon sergeant when we uh, deployed to South America. Um, Got so out of control, we had to send him home, you know, because he immediately needed, you know, level three inpatient treatment. Um, Yeah, yeah, he was. and and, And you know the thing that was sad about him? There were a lot of things that were sad about him. But when he was sober, he was probably one of the best staff NCOs in the 24 years that I came across. I mean, he was yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, the problem was he was only sober about 50% of the times towards the end of the deployment. Yeah. Um yeah. and so I have I have seen people both in uniform and out of uniform uh my entire life uh struggle with uh various forms of addiction and uh and alcoholism. So you know, the the key is, uh, <laughs> you know, the key is, in my opinion, for those individuals is that um, from my experience in helping with those folks is making sure that they know that they've got people who, who care about them uh, and who support them and who, you know, understand like, hey, you know, it's, you, you can't stress enough to people in that situation that there's no shame In getting help. Um, And what I have told Marines and sailors and other people in that same situation if you came to work with a broken arm, and I could see that your arm was broken, visibly broken, I'll take you to the hospital.
2: Yeah. And we get it ended.
1: There'd be no shame in that. Um, You know, whether it comes to PTSD or any form of mental illness or any form of addiction, you know, my, my, what I always told my people was like, what's the difference? What's the difference between the broken arm and the fact that you have a, a substance abuse issue? There's no, there's no difference really. You, you know, you go, you get treatment, we help you and you move on. And the last thing, if you came in my office with a broken arm and I could see that your arm was broken, I'm not just going to shrug my shoulders and go, well, you know, don't be a pussy. You don't deal with it. You know you know what I mean? Like I, I'd yeah. be like, what the yeah. hell are you doing here? Like, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> you, yeah, know, like, right? you, you go to the hospital and get help, you know, and then however long it takes for your arm to heal is however long it takes. But the priority is, is your health. And so, you know, whenever I counseled individuals who were dealing with various issues, it'd be like it's to me, it's no different.
2: It's yeah. no different yeah. than if
1: you came to me with a, with a broken arm. I, I don't see it any different now, you know, in terms of any stigmas that might exist or whatever. So what? Like, go get yourself healthy. That's number one, you're a young man or a young woman, go get yourself healthy. In the case of my dad, the same thing, old man or old woman, it's like, dad, you know, you got grandkids you wanna see grow up. You've got, you know, um, you you wanna be there for all those milestones that are still yet to come, you know, and people want to hear, you know? So, you know, if you need help, go get help. And, you know, and I think that's the key in my experience it, for those folks is they have to understand that there are people that are there to support them without shame. Um, and that I think is absolutely critical because I think if you, if you know, you've got that. Uh, hey, thanks buddy. I appreciate that. You just, just brought me a watch. Um, <laughs> he wants to make sure I don't lose track of time. So, um, but it, In my experience, it's critical for particularly as leaders, um, you know, particularly for us as leaders, as officers and staff and COs is to pull those people in and say, hey, there's no shame. It's like you're hurt. It happens. You know, Um, everybody gets hurt in this job. You know, the Marine Corps has a 100 percent injury rate. Some of us are hurt physically. Some of us are hurt mentally. Some of us bring baggage with us that the stress of this job exposes bottom line is that you're hurt man. It's okay. You know, if you were in a firefight and got shot, you know, nobody would be like, Oh, sure. you, know, you know, rub some dirt on it. Like, no, you know, we <laughs> would get you to the hospital and we'd fix you. Um, so that to me is, is critical is, is, is sitting those people down kneecap to kneecap and making sure they understand like, listen, I don't think any less of you, because you have a substance abuse issue, I don't think any less because you have, you know, you have PTSD. You're hurt. All of us get hurt in this business. It's one of the things that makes it, at times, kind of crazy to think about. Um, you know, I mean, there are Marines who go through 20 years in the Marine Corps, never see combat, who we'll still walk away with issues. It is a tough job. You know, uh, you get up every day and you. You ask your body to do things that the human body was not designed to do. Um, You put yourself through things mentally um, that we were not designed to withstand, and we do it voluntarily. Um, And then when you add in the specter of combat, um, it just exacerbates that. And so, you know, for me, from my perspective and my leadership style, that was always the tact that I took with people who were dealing with various issues with those, those injuries that you can't see. Um, is just that, you know, you treat them the same. And when I mentored, you know, my young officers that came up with me and staff and seals that came up with me, <clears throat> that was always my pitch to say, hey, that's part of the reason why people sometimes are so reluctant to ask for help is because we treat different medical medical issues. We seem, We tend to put them in different categories in terms of how much we care. And I would always just use the broken arm analogy to be like, hey, you know, any one of you, Comes in here with your bone sticking through your arm. None of us are going to think any less of you if you decide to go to the hospital and get it fixed. <laughs> you know, so that was kind
0: of, yeah. you know, the way that I attacked that problem. So, so I have a a friend of mine. I told him I was doing this interview, and he he wrote a good question for you. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna okay. read it. I'm just gonna read it because I, I want to. Uh, I don't want to misinterpret it the way he wrote it. So his sure. question is. Um, your opinion or your perspective on orders down the ranks, your expect your expectation versus reality. Um, Has there ever been a time where you give, you gave an order and it wasn't delegated the way that you wanted it to, or the the way that you wanted things to be taken care of? The outcome wasn't the right way. Did the, Uh. did they meet your expectations Or were you at all surprised or impressed in some instances by the by the Marines and their their adaptability to accomplish your orders?
1: Sure, that the the answer to that question would be yes to both ends of the spectrum. Um, You know, there there were times, particularly as a company grade officer, where, you know, you you, make an order and make a decision and it didn't get executed to the to the level that you expected. Um, and then there were definitely other times where the Marines just completely blew me away in terms of what they were able to come up with and what they were developed, to develop just based solely on intent. Um, so <clears throat> what I would say, in that in my experience, a lot of it, uh, I gained an appreciation early on for the importance of corporals. Um, and if you were to ask me as a Lieutenant, especially as a lieutenant, you know, what rank is the most important in the Marine Corps? I would have told you without hesitation, corporals. I learned really fast. I could have great Lance Corporals and PFCs. I could have great Sergeants. I could have great Sergeants. (laughs) And one of the things that um, didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, we've gotten a lot better at it, uh, uh, particularly in the infantry, was uh. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, I, I hear you. Sir. Uh,
1: one of the things I learned very quickly was was usually whenever there was a breakdown in execution, uh, it usually happened at the corporal level. Um, conversely, whenever we usually knocked it out of the park, uh, it was usually because of the corporals. You know, um, so that was, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, I, I was blessed. Uh, the vast majority of my staff and SEALs throughout my career were, were excellent. Uh, the vast majority of my sergeants were pretty good. Um, and I was blessed. I also had good Marines. You know, you have your bottom 10%. You know, you had your, your guys and gals who um, created some, some challenges. <laughs> um, um, but corporal for me is really where I learned very quickly where the rubber met the road. If you had strong corporals, it was very little you couldn't do um, as a platoon commander and as a company commander.
0: So in your time, uh, I I know one of the things that you wanted to talk about, sir, was the burden of leadership. Um, What did you mean specifically by that? Like, what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's something that that nobody prepares you for. Um, uh, Command and combat um, can be extremely
2: lonely. Um, You
1: nobody prepares you for the moment when somebody dies following your orders. there's no class for it there's no training for it um when you're sitting down behind that laptop writing that condolence letter to that family or making that phone call
2: um and then the gravity of it hits you um there's nothing that prepares you for that and
1: you can tell yourself and you can have other people tell you hey it's just, it's just war you made the right decision it was just that individual's day so on and so forth things that you know rationally in the back of your mind are true um At least for me, and I know every commander faces it differently. um,
2: There's a part of you that never gets over that. Um, And I can tell you that there were many times where
1: just the gravity of it, of company command in particular, which is uh, my combat experience with both was both company command and as an advisor team leader in Afghanistan, um, having to make tough decisions that you knew were vital to accomplishing the mission, but that you also knew,
2: um, would likely result or potentially result in people getting hurt. Um,
1: And you also knew that no amount of planning, no amount of detail, no amount of discipline, while all those things were important in terms of mitigating the possibility that you were going to lose folks. At the end of the day, you knew that the law of averages were going to catch up to you at some point. You know, the enemy always has a vote. Um, And in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we were dealing with a very creative enemy that didn't, you
2: know, that wasn't stacked. And, you know, There's that
1: old, you know, for professionals in the the military, you know, complaints go up, you know, they don't go down. So, you know, your role as a commander is to be the rock that everybody else looks up to, especially when things aren't going well.
2: Um, But you don't have anybody else. To to lean on. Except for the guy that's looking back at you in the mirror. And.
1: Uh, you know, you can confide in your staff NCOs. You know, like I confide, I was lucky as particularly as a weapons company commander. You know, I had both a first sergeant and operations chief, so I had you know a master sergeant and a first sergeant. You know, working with me. You know, both great staff NCOs. But even still, as a commander, there's only so much you know venting that 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 you can do, um, and so you end up. Trying to find ways to cope with the stress yourself, um, but also making sure that no one else sees you sweat if that makes sense,
0: yeah. yeah. And that was the question yeah. I was going to ask you because that's got to be it. Because, like, if you're down in the dumps or if you're sure, yeah, reflecting that to your, your subordinates, yeah. then and they're going to yeah. see that, especially while being out in theater. Um, sure. and I'm and I'm assuming, or I want to ask you, like, so. Is there? Do you still deal with that? Is like, is there times where you look back at it and you're, and you yeah, still absolutely, argue with yeah. yourself? Like, could I have made a oh, different decision? Yeah. Could I have done Every something day. different?
1: Every day, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't say that as it's, it's not hyperbole. Um, there isn't a day that doesn't go by, and probably will never be another day that doesn't go by where I don't think about a decision that I made. Um and second guess myself in terms of what could I have done differently and would the results have been different? Um, I didn't. And again, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the uh, you know, PTSD, you know, again, everybody who goes through combat or suffers any sort of traumatic event, all of us are hardwired differently. Mm-hmm. So I never, you know, suffered from traditional PTSD as a result of my experiences in combat. But I will tell you that I, I had, for a period of time, almost crippling survivor's guilt. Um, and I, I took the loss of each one of my Marines personally. Uh, I blame myself for it for a long, long time. And, and it took about five years um, before I stopped feeling personally responsible for the deaths of each of the Marines that I lost um, but yeah there isn't a day that doesn't go, go by where I don't I don't think about those Marines I don't think about the decisions that were made and what I could have done better or differently as a commander that may have that may have changed the results of, of how that turned out
0: so what advice do you have for those leaders who are now may be in your shoes? Sure. And or yourself, like if you could, I know we clearly can't go back. But yeah. What, it, you know, like you said, there is no, you know, yeah, you can read books, you can, you know, sure. read, read documentaries, but you, you're not going to learn it till you live it. Um, but what are, what are some maybe words or some advice that you could share with us um, maybe to help someone if they are ever in those shoes where they have yeah. to be the one to make those decisions and make those hard calls?
1: Sure. Yeah. Number one, the number one thing I would tell any of those officers is don't be afraid to make the hard calls. Um, that's number one. You know, the, the nature of our business is brutal. <clears throat> um, when you when you strip off the veneer, you know, you, you strip off the, you know, the, the, the great looking dress blues and, uh, you know, the bumper sticker slogans and all the recruiting commercials. At the end of the day, especially in the combat arms community, I mean, our job is to go places and kill people. Um, and at times it can be horrible. Um, the people you're fighting against, they're going to try to kill you and sometimes they're going to succeed. Um, but the first thing I would tell them is, is, is don't be afraid to make the hard call. That's number one, because the one thing you can never lose sight of is that the number one way that you're going to keep people alive is do everything you can to shorten the conflict. So, you know, winning is one of the most surefire ways to to make sure that you keep as many people alive as possible. So every decision you make uh, has got to be with that in mind in terms of achieving the objective whatever objectives you're giving and doing so as quickly and efficiently as possible, because that's ultimately the most effective way uh, to save lives. And you can, and you can use side of that. Once you become risk averse and you start building your plans around, Hey, I want to try to build this plan in such a way as to where I make it as quote unquote safe as possible. um, You're probably going to get more people hurt that way. Um, then as opposed to focusing on, on the enemy and doing what you need to do to achieve your objectives and then making it as efficient as you possibly can, but understanding that people are going to have to assume risk. The other thing that I would, I would tell anybody in that position, um, and this is something that, that I learned, is that <clears throat> whatever pain you're feeling as a commander is nothing compared to the pain that that marines peers are feeling so you know the guilt that i felt with the death of each of those marines was nothing compared to the guilt and pain that the marines who were on his left and right felt and so one
0: why do you thing, why do I you feel mean, that way sir
1: cuz more personal for them um you know i i knew my marines pretty well I didn't know them anywhere near as well as the guys that that partied with them every weekend or or slept next to them. Right. You know, there's no way I could have known them as well as they knew them, you know, and formed those types of friendships. Um, So you have to make it clear as a commander, particularly as a commander, because remember the vast majority of our Marines, they don't make a career. They get out, you know, they go do other things. So you have to make it clear that your responsibility to them as a commander never ends. <clears throat> you know, the guys that I went to Iraq and Afghanistan with, I've, I've made it clear. I, and I was like, hey, I will always be your commander in the sense that whenever you need anything, whenever you're having a bad day or struggling with something that we experienced, you know, when I say that my email and my phone is always available, you know, well, now with social media even more so, you know, don't hesitate. You know, um, and I think it's important to make that clear. To be like, listen, don't don't ever feel like you're you, you are going through anything alone. You know, I you know that yeah, I'm always up for the three o'clock phone call. You know, for somebody who who is struggling, because I would much rather. You know, we have terrible, terrible suicide rates um, with our veterans, in particular our combat. And so I was like, listen, I'd much rather you wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning, even if I've got to talk you off a ledge someplace, you know, than read your obituary. You know, so, and I also think that that's cathartic for, and what I have found is that can be very cathartic for for me in terms of having to remember and take a step back and be like, hey, listen, you got it right most of the time. You know, the vast majority of the Marines that you took into combat came back in one piece and have gone on to do, you know, either have their own successful Marine Corps careers or, or go off and gone off and done other things in life and been successful. A few have struggled. Um, but you know, the vast majority of us now are at a place where we're doing pretty well. Um, and so it's also good to remind yourself of that to say like, Hey, yeah, you, you can go back and second guess yourself every day for the rest of your life. But remember the vast majority of the time you got it right. Um, the other thing I would tell them is that it's okay, like I would tell anybody else, to ask for help
2: if you need it. Um, I was good at giving. Her- Poor
1: job of of taking care of me. probably the three things I would um <clears throat> apologize again, my connections unstable. Well, but those would be the three things that I would that I would tell somebody in terms of, hey, um, it's gonna happen. You know, if, if you take Marines and sailors into combat, uh no matter how good of a job you do, you're not gonna bring everybody back. Uh, you know, and I I had uh I'll be honest with you, I went to combat under the illusion that I was going to bring everybody back. And the first time I lost a Marine, there was a part of me that just didn't want to believe it had happened. And I, I distinctly remembered, and it was one of the most selfish thoughts I ever had. And I feel guilty about it to this day. But I remember thinking, how could this happen to me? You know, like I, <laughs> you know, like this, you know, how could this happen? How could I lose a Marine? Like, how could this happen? Um, this wasn't supposed to happen. That was the next thought that kind of popped in my head. And it was just like, you know, listen, you know, I had to kind of like have a conversation with myself. Hey, listen, moron, like you're at war. It, it wasn't, it's, it's not, you know, this, this is the two-way shooting range. It's like, it's, you're at war. But there was definitely that, I, I would definitely tell anybody, as naive as it may sound, and as silly as it may sound to people, I fully expected as a company commander to bring everyone home and was shocked when I didn't um, and I think that's part of the reason why I took it so personal that I didn't you know because I I had I, I put that burden on myself that I was going to bring everybody back um but the enemy has a vote and that's something that you can't um, you know They get up every day with their own plans, and no matter how good
2: you are, um, again, good discipline, uh, um, making
1: You know, paying attention to very small details. Uh, You know, General Mattis had the signs all over Camp Fallujah, you know, complacency kills. Um, You know, reminding people of that all the time. Having to be an absolute flaming asshole the last 90 days of the deployment. Staying on top of people for making sure they put their helmets on if they move the vehicle three feet. Like, put your helmet and your flak on. Uh, You know, just, just those little things that you had to stay on top of staying on top of my lieutenants to make sure they didn't get staying on top of the marines staying on top of staff and shells doing those things that make make you very unpopular in the moment those little things that you have to do in order to keep people uh alive uh and then understanding that even even when you're doing all that um the enemy still has a vote and and some days you're not going to get the results that you want Um, be honest to the families, families are going to have questions. The moms never get over it. You have to be prepared for that. Um, I was very open with the families. I stayed connected with the families. I did that deliberately. Uh, I'm very good friends with the, um, one of the Marines we lost his mom and I've gotten, gotten close over the years. Um, but I would tell you, you know, whenever his birthday rolls around or the anniversary of the day that he was killed, <coughs> she relives re- re- it every time. And going on 20 years later, it's it's just as devastating for her every year as it was when it ha- happened, you know, the day that it happened. And it is, again, it's going to sound selfish, and, and uh, but it's one of the most helpless feelings that I have every year is... I never know what to say other than I'm sorry, because I know that there's no amount of poetry that's going to flow from my lips. That's going to assuage what she's feeling as a mom. Um, The families never get over it. Those gold star families, they never get over it. They, you know, um, you know, um, and I would tell you that I would trade every promotion every medal, every accolade that I ever
2: received in 24 years, I would trade it all for those kids back in a heartbeat.
1: I would I would gladly walk away from the Marine Corps as the, as the worst officer that ever wore a Marine Corps uniform if it meant that those Marines would be brought back to life. Um, but that's That's a fantasy, Um, but not coming back. And, um, you know, there's a great old movie with a great actor called, uh, named Gregory Peck. Uh, um, It's called 12 O'Clock High. And uh, in the movie, Gregory Peck is a a brigadier general (coughs) who's sent to clean up a bomber group which is underperforming in World War II. And the guy that he replaced um, had become risk averse. He had become more concerned with um, doing things that help keep his crews alive as opposed to accomplishing the mission. And so Gregory Peck's character has to come in and clean up the bomber group and, and, and get, them, get them back to where they needed to be so they were performing. And so, he by making them a better squadron, he actually saved a lot of lives. But the losses of each one of those bomber crews eventually chipped away at, it. you know, because he was he was exactly that kind of officer where he was he was wearing the brave face throughout the majority of the movie, but a little at a time, it was you know every loss eroded him a little bit. And they get to the, the, the last mission where he's, he basically suffers a nervous breakdown and he can't fly. And um, the officer that he had to relieve who he had taken under his wing uh, basically assumes command of the bomber group. They go off and run an excellent mission. And, and the, one of the final scenes shows Gregory Peck you know, sitting there basically almost in a catatonic state, and he hears his bomber group coming back just to wake up. And so one of the officers who was like, they called him the ground exec, you know, Gregory Peck's character says, hey, how many did we lose? He's like, we didn't lose any today. Like, they all made it back. You know, and it was because of you.
2: And so what I would tell any commander is that Everybody handle you, but how we all handle it is different. Um, but ultimately,
1: the way that you're going to um, succeed is by having and keep the majority of your folks alive is by having the best trained unit and the best disciplined unit that you can build within the time and resources that are available. Um, and if you're doing that, Even with the losses that you take, if you know in your heart of hearts that you did the best you could with the resources and time you had available, you know, you can walk away even with the pain of the losses, knowing that you did everything you could within your power to get that unit to the level that it needed to be to be successful in combat. And that's the best advice that I could give any young officer or staff and CEO. Um, heading into that situation, but it is lonely. It is, it is a, it is lonely. Um, and you just need to be prepared for that.
0: Um, was there any, was there any, you mentioned the movie, was there any books that you read at all that helped you kind of help with your decision-making or help grow you as an individual, as an officer, sir? Um, you know, from that movie? No, any, any other books or any other things that you've used in your time to help grow as an officer when it comes to decision-making and and leadership tactics?
1: Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to, I read so much, you know, one of the things that I would tell anybody who decides to make the Marine Corps profession, whether enlisted or officers, you have to become a student of your profession um and remember that very few of the things that we experience especially in the combat arms haven't already happened to other people um so pick up a book read it listen to it I've become a big fan of audio books here recently uh put it down and pick up another one um in terms of uh books that I read that I tell you you no people used to laugh at me when I said this but uh, <laughs> there's this kind of cheesy old movie about the Civil War about Gettysburg, um, and again, I'm relating back to a movie scene, but there's there's a point to it. Um, on the third day at Gettysburg, you have Pickett's Charge. Now, most people look at the third day from the Confederate perspective in terms of you know the decision you know, made by Lee, um, you know, on the third day to, to attack the union center, um, Longstreet disagreeing with him, Pickett not being probably the best person to have led the charge, so on and so forth. Um, what this movie did though, was it gave the perspective briefly from the union side and there was a commander there. Can't remember his name. It might've been, uh, I'm, I, I'm not going to guess I can see his face, but can't remember his name, but he was, he was the brigade commander of, of what they call the Iron Brigade, um, and it was this famous unit within the, um, the Union Army, had a, a reputation for extraordinary toughness, and they had an extraordinarily tough commander. And there was a scene that I, I recalled many times, even in combat, um, believe it or not, where he's on his horse, the brigade commander's on his horse, And his aide basically runs him and says, hey, sir, please get off the horse. If anything happens to you, you know, the brigade isn't going to be able to function. And, you know, the Union Army is absorbing this attack. It's unexpected. They were weak in the center, but they knew that they couldn't break. And the brigade commander very calmly looks down and says, hey, there are times where a brigade commander's life doesn't matter. You know, and he says calmly, he's on his horse, he's riding back and forth. And he did it more than anything just to inspire his soldiers at the worst possible time to say, hey, I'm here with you. And I'm willing to assume all the same risk that you are. I know the enemy can see me on this horse. I know they know who I am. I'm not running away from that. I'm here with you right now. Heart's not skipping a beat. And I always looked at that little scene as an example of what leadership in combat really is about. It's about those moments where your soldiers, your Marines, whoever have gotta be able to look up at you as a commander and know that you are facing all the same level of danger they are and you are cool, calm and collected. If it's my moment, then it's my moment, but I'm gonna die on my feet next to my Marines leading them in the most calm and professional manner possible. And so when I found myself in that situation, um, I would always, in those moments where I'd tell myself, you know, when the bullets were flying and the IEDs were going off, I'd be like, Ugh, I don't want to be here right now, <laughs> you know. I would always think about the commander of the Iron Brigade in the center at Gettysburg and what he told his aide. And that was kind of my, my internal motto in terms of what I tried to emulate as an officer in those situations where we were having some days that, you know, things sometimes weren't going so well.
0: What do you, um, so now looking back at everything and just looking forward, like what's, like how do you see your time in the Marine Corps? How did it prepare you for what's to come for your next sure. career, yeah. for your future?
1: Yep. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, number one, I love people, you know, and, and leadership is leadership. You know, I'm blessed in, 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 you know, this opportunity that I have coming up now um, very similar to a company command kind of situation. I'm going to have other, <coughs> you know, lieutenants for lack of a term working for me and, and, and they're going to have their teams working for them, you know, and then I'm going to have the equivalent of a battalion commander above me. So it's going to be very similar in terms of how it's structured to, Uh, company command. So that's something that's very comfortable for me Um, dealing with chaos and unpredictability. Um, There's nothing more chaotic and unpredictable than a battlefield. So having had that experience, you know, I, I, I've told people many times my definition of a bad day and your definition of a bad day are completely different. Um, You know, when I worked on Capitol Hill, (laughs) I was one of the older people working in the office, you know, when I had a chance to be a fellow. I was actually about 20 years older than most of the people in the office. And I can't remember what it was. There was something bad that happened that day and morale in the office was a little bit low. Uh, Maybe we had a bill that didn't pass or something like that. Um, But it meant we were going to have to stay and work pretty late. And I remember one of the young staffers was like, Hey Alex, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. You know, I was like, I'm not sleeping on the ground in the rain and no one's trying to kill me. It's like, I'm okay. <laughs> you know. So I think having had those experiences, having endured some things and having endured some, some hardship, um, you know, times I can look back throughout my career and point to those moments where I was like, I shouldn't have survived that moment. I should be, you know, six
2: feet underground buried 95 at Arlington, um, you know, it just, it gives you that
1: perspective. So, you know, heading into <coughs> a, a civilian role, um, while I'm certainly not going to downplay the challenges that come with, you know, with civilian leadership and, 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 the corporate world, I don't want to, I don't want to go in and be arrogant and cocky and be like, eh, you know, this whole civilian thing is going to be a cakewalk compared to what I just did the past 24 years, you know, because if I go into it with that mindset, then I'll, I'll fall flat on my face. Um, but, I, you know, I'm able to keep things in perspective and be like, okay, I've, I've, I've led some tough type A personalities. Um, and I've been in some of the, uh, some harrowing situations and some confusing situations. And I think that that mental preparedness, you know, um, being formally trained how to plan, how to do detailed planning, but also at the same token, understand that the, you know, one of the first things you learn as a planner uh, is that your plan is going to change at some point and you have to have the flexibility to not fall in love with that plan and deal with the changes as they come up. So there's that flexibility that's inherent. So,
0: so um, sir, I don't, so- I don't know how you feel about answering this, but I'm, I just want to see what your thoughts are. Sure. Like, so like, just like you just said, you know, you, you go into, you know, you, you plan all this stuff out, you know, you, you know, you you go through all the different wickets. You you go through all the hours and days of planning a mission, and then it comes to the day where it's happening, and you're the you know, like you said, it's it's gonna you know sometimes things are gonna go south. How sure. does how what do you do in that moment? Like, how does you know how do you number one? Like, what are the feelings going through your mind through your through your body? Like, is there a, <laughs> is there a specific thought that you have like looking sure. back? Is there a time maybe you can talk yeah. us through that? You know. Sure.
1: Um, generally speaking, there's a millisecond of frustration uh, because you just put all this time and effort into building a plan uh, and then, you know, fill in the blank. The weather, uh, the enemy, the Marine Corps, uh, sometimes a combination of all three uh, decided, yeah, we will see your plan and we've changed things. And so there's there's that initial frustration because you just spent all that time planning. Um, but then there's the, okay, let's get over it and let's, let's take what we've planned as a baseline and see how we need to deviate from it. And so that's one of the things when, you know, I've taught planning, like I said, for 14 years. And I was like, Hey, that's one of the things that's the importance of planning events on the ground are going to change events on the periphery are going to change that you have no control over. You have to be prepared for that mentally and then but the beautiful thing about having a plan is that you're not starting over from scratch you're just alternating a deviation of the plan um and if you've been looking at the problem the right way unless you were looking at the problem completely the wrong way even the curveballs should be something you're able to adjust to you know not easily, but you should be able to adjust to that. Um, but I would always tell you, I mean, I, again, not always practicing what I what I preach, that whenever that happened, there was always sort of that initial like, you know, like Ugh! you know, because you, you know, you put a lot of work into those plans. And so uh, you wouldn't be human if there wasn't that initial kind of like son of a B, yeah. you know, yeah. moment, but then you have to put it behind you and, and focus on what's next
0: okay and um so the the last thing that i would kind of just ask you is just um throughout everything throughout all of this what is your advice on just decision making in general like what is your like how do you go about decision making and especially when you don't have the time and it sometimes it has to be like okay right now on the fly like we're gonna go do this and then
1: Uh, Here's what I would tell anybody, Um, and this is what I learned early on. Trust your instincts. Um, That little voice in your head, that intuition, is right 9 out of 10 times. Um, We as human beings, particularly in the Western world or modern world, the, the instinctive intuition that we carry around as human beings has been honed over millions of years. So, our survival mechanisms that we carry around, when that little voice in your head says, Hey, you know, it's for instance, when you meet someone who just gives you a bad vibe, you can't put your finger on it. You can't. But you know that there's just something about that person that isn't right. If you think about it, throughout the majority of your life, nine, eight out of 10 times, that little voice that was like, something person isn't right that voice in your head was right about that person you may not have been able to put your finger on it but there was something that just those alarm bells started going off like hey you know and those alarm bells are millions of years of DNA and hard lesson learned that have been ingrained in your cycle. when you're a young commander or hell an old commander, and you see something and there, you know, that little voice in your head is like, yeah, yeah. You know, that little voice in your head is like, hey, I think I think we made the, need, the, need to take a left turn here. You know, trust your instincts. When you don't have time for deliberate planning, when you don't have time for, you know, so on and so forth, number one, trust your instincts. Number two. Hey, buddy. I Okay, I'm almost done. Um, number two. If you do have time, listen to people, um, listen to, you know, listen to your NCOs and staff NCOs because they have a gut instinct too in terms of what's going on. and They have their own experiences. So if you have time <coughs> to have a huddle and take in some additional input, then do that and see what other people think. If you don't and you have to make a decision based on like, hey, we don't have time for a committee there's no time for deliberate planning. I have to make a decision right now and then stand by it. Trust your instincts. Those instincts are right the majority of the time.
0: Was there ever, do you have any thoughts right now of a time where your instinct was right? Like, is there anything maybe you can share with us where you're like, I remember this one time.
1: <laughs> oh, geez. Um it's hard, I, you know, I just I just went through this with the, the interview with the company that I'm working for It was kind of a similar thing, but you have so many different examples. Sometimes it's hard to, to, to pull down specific examples. One of the gut instinct decisions I made that um, worked out well in the long run. Um, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, we just saw what happened in Afghanistan. Um, we had what what equated to a, a small coup attempt in the Kandak that we were, you know, the army, Afghan army battalion that we were partnered with. And we had two factions within the unit that were about to come to blows. And I made a split decision to physically get between the factions Definitely not by the book. The book says when that happens, you get out of the way and let the Afghans handle their business. But I had a sense that if things went kinetic between these two groups within the Kandak, then the whole thing was going to unravel. And so I made a split decision to just physically get between them, put the arms up. Hey, you know. And probably not by the book the smartest decision but it worked you know it 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 got them to kind of like you know for the moment de-escalate the situation we were able to get afghan leadership to come in got everybody in a circle and they you know they talked it out they hugged it out you know and what could have been a bloodbath you know turned into a reconciliation um Hindsight. Would I do it again? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I know that my advisor team had done a lot of work to get us to where we were.
2: And um, a lot of people had shed a lot of blood in that part of
1: Afghanistan to get us where we were. And, you know, we, we were still sort of at a tipping point. And if, if something drastic wasn't done in that moment, I think we could have um, suffered an incident that was so catastrophic that we, we weren't gonna recover from it. So that was an incident where I made a split decision, followed my gut, um, was able to help de-escalate the situation. A lot of other things happened for mm-hmm. that millisecond of me saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, so the international, calm down, fellas. You know, um, it, even if it was just for a millisecond, sort of deflected their attention away from each other. It was like, hey, you know, the gringo has gotten between us here. You know, it, it, at least for a minute, forced a change in the conversation. Okay. So, um that's an example that I mean I, 24 years
0: you know, <laughs> so you know, 100 you know another question I would like to ask is just because I've, I've had a lot of people ask me I' actually had someone ask me yesterday about it um and maybe coming from your standpoint um and especially because you have were through the whole entire thing what are your I don't want to say thoughts on it but like how do you feel about everything going on right now with us leaving Afghanistan and I asked that only oh, because boy. Yeah. Only, only because like I have a lot of friends of mine. I was at a wedding recently, um, and a friend that was at a wedding, and I deployed with both of the people at the wedding, and they both came up to me. We were having a couple of drinks, and they were like, yeah. they were upset about what had happened, and they felt like we were there for no reason, and, and a lot of people are feeling that way. Um, so, what are your yeah thoughts on that? He, and
1: sure, yeah, and here's and, and he, here's here's what I would tell all my fellow Afghan vets. Um, we didn't go there for no reason. We we went and did our jobs. You know, at the end of the day, our job was to facilitate the ability of the Afghan national security forces and the Afghan government to stand on our own two feet. We did that. You know, it's like, you know, it, it's like if you have a friend who, like we talked earlier in the beginning, who has a, a substance abuse issue. Right. You make it clear to that individual, like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you and I'm willing to help. But there's a limit. There's a limit that at a certain point, you've got to be able be willing to look your friend or your, your relative in the eye and be like, listen, I've done everything I can for you. At some point, you've got to take the training wheels off and determine your own future. I empathize with you. You're in a tough situation. I empathize with the Afghans. They had their future stolen from them by the Soviets. You know, if you look at the old before and after pictures of of Afghanistan in the late 70s, Afghanistan was on their way. You know, they had a chance of being a a stable second world country with a a decent standard of living. And, you know, nonstop war took that away from them. So I empathize with them to a certain degree to say, yeah, you got a raw deal. But we were there for 20 years. You know, I I don't know about everybody else's experiences as an advisor, but I spent the majority of my time, as did my advisors in
2: Afghanistan, convincing the Afghan National Security Forces to do their job. You know, I spent
1: the majority of my time as an advisor in Afghanistan trying to get the Afghans to care about their country as much as I cared about the country. So my, from my point of view, I'd say to any Afghan vet, we did our job. We went over there, did what we were asked to do, in most cases went above and beyond, but you can't make people care. The reason the Taliban won is not because they were better trained, better equipped, better people, better anything. They care. That's why they won. Point blank in the story. It's it's the same thing in Vietnam. We did everything for the South Vietnamese military. On paper, the South Vietnamese military was better than the North Vietnamese military. The North Vietnamese won because they care. The South Vietnamese did not. The only Afghans, honestly, and I know this sounds callous, but the only Afghans at the end of the day that I, I cared about were the ones who stuck out their necks to assist us, assist them. And I felt like it was an absolute travesty that we waited so long to get those people out. Those, those interpreters, And all the other people behind the scenes that that risked their lives to help the U.S. mission, you know, and and did their part to help, to really help Afghanistan stand on its own two feet. We should have got them out years ago. It it should not have been a situation where at the last minute we're scrambling to rescue people and we had to be guilted into it. That was a travesty. We should have got all those folks out years ago and their families. They should have been gone. They should have been resettled in the West years ago. That's the part that bothers me. I I can't give someone I can lead by example. I can go out on every patrol. I, I can't make them care. So, from my perspective, I will always be proud of what my advisors accomplished. Um, but I'll tell anybody when I got on that C 17, I got home, people asked me about Afghanistan. I was like, it's time to go. And I said that 10 years ago. And I, and I, and I say that as a Marine who was, was extremely proud of my service in Afghanistan. Told, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, why are we still there? We can't make them care. I was like, the Taliban are going to win for one very simple reason. They give a damn. I mean, and that's that's how I feel. I, It's heartbreaking for the simple fact that in 20 years, 20 years, they couldn't pick up the ball and run with it on their own. And I'm sorry. You give somebody two decades to get their stuff together, you're out of excuses. Now, did I like the way that we left? No, the way that we left was embarrassing. Um, the lack of planning, the lack of detail, the the somewhat the, the, the surprise that, you know, things collapsed as quickly as they did. It's like, come on, that part in terms of the execution, shameful, but there, there was no excuse for that shit show of a withdrawal. Uh, it should have been phased down over several months with a specific focus on getting the right people out um, with enough ability left to do a real organized, proper withdrawal. So there was no excuse for the for the drama that we saw on TV and for any of that nonsense. There was no excuse for that. There was no excuse for that squad of Marines getting killed at the gate. Um, no excuse for the the haphazard 40 plan way that happened. And I would tell you, you know, There's a lot of people that have a lot to answer for, both in uniform and and out of uniform for whatever the hell that was. But in terms of leaving Afghanistan, from a strategic standpoint, should have been done a decade ago.
0: So can I I ask you another question just because we just kind of got into it? Sure. Have you seen, I'm assuming you've seen what happened with Lieutenant Colonel uh, Schumer, I think it is? Yeah. What do you... Is he right for what he's doing? Is he wrong for what he's doing? Is Oh, he... boy. Like, what do you think now that you're out of the Marine Corps and you, yeah. you know, and you have, you know, because that you were and essentially at the same time. Sure. It, yeah, like you're like, yeah. what are your thoughts being the same rank as him, you know, him throwing yeah. it on the line like that?
1: I respect him for having the courage of his convictions, of, of being willing to kind of put the rank on the table and say, hey, what the hell was that? And that we've gotten into this trend
2: where In their collars or wearing a suit gets fired
1: um we'll fire a battalion commander or a company commander for something that isn't their fault in a heartbeat but we can have a goat rodeo of withdrawal from afghanistan i haven't seen anyone get relieved i haven't seen anyone get fired i haven't seen anyone resign so from that perspective i can Understand where he's coming from in terms of we've gotten in this trend where as you as you get above a certain rank, no matter how screwed up things become, you almost become untouchable as a result. Um, I saw that from a safety perspective. You know, um, there were definitely some circumstances I saw, and I'm not going to get into it here now. But were guys wearing stars on their collars should have been fired. It was a lieutenant colonel or the colonel or the captain or the lieutenant or the gunnery sergeant who got fired. Then it should have been a general who got fired. And so what he said in terms of his message, I agreed with his method of going about it. Here's the problem. We live in a new cycle where our attention span is about 48 hours. Again, respect him for having the courage of his his convictions. He's not in the news anymore. America has already forgotten about Afghanistan and what happened two weeks ago. The only people still talking about Afghanistan are those Afghan vets who went there who are still suffering from the the emotional uh, impacts of what they saw Um, and what we all experienced there. You know, and I tell people, Afghanistan is not a place you can describe. You have to, like, if you weren't there, trying to tell people about the things you saw in Afghanistan is like, you're on another planet. Um, you know, the place is like no place I've ever been to. It's, it's like stepping back to the 12th century. That's not an exaggeration. And You've been there, so you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're, coming back home from Afghanistan and trying to explain to people, like, the things you saw there, you know, some of it you can't make sense of. Yeah. Um, and so we collectively, those of us who experienced that place, it still reverberates with us. What happened a few weeks ago? The average America is back at the mall. So yeah, the the lieutenant colonel, he took off the rank, he put it down. He's you know, we need to demand accountability. He's already yesterday's
2: news. You want to affect change in the military? This is how you do it. You make the promise that when I'm the guy wearing those two or three stars and when it's my turn, that doesn't happen. I mean, I respect the guy's courage, but no
1: general's have been relieved of their commands and no civilian leadership has been held accountable as a result of what happened a couple of weeks ago, nor will they be. Now, as I understand it, he was a talented officer who was you know, in the ascension of his career and probably would have had a, a pretty good chance of pinning on the star himself here in a couple of years. And he would have been, in my opinion, would have made a greater impact by walking the walk as a general officer. And so my advice to all of those officers out there who are frustrated with the leadership that we all, all sometimes see at the senior levels or, or lack of leadership that we sometimes see at the senior levels, my advice to those officers is get promoted and change it. That's how it's going to change. It's not going to change to a one-man protest. It's going to change through the right people making it up into the ranks because we're going to go to war again. There's another war in our future. And you know the generation of Marines and officers who are coming up now are gonna be the ones who fight it. So when you find yourself as that person who is now that senior leader, don't be the senior leader you told yourself you'd never be. You know, when something happens, it's obviously your responsibility live up to your ethos,
2: which you expect everybody else to do, and be the one to say, hey, that was on me. And lead by example. That's how this is going to change. That's the only way it's going to change. you know. And, and, and here's a
1: perfect example of it. You had an entire generation of officers that came out of Vietnam that said, we're never going to do any of the idiocy that we saw in Vietnam. And that generation of officers made that promise to, to themselves and to the, the service members. And so, if you looked at the military of the 80s and 90s and the military that we took to Desert Shield and Desert Storm, they were all led by Vietnam vets who were like, listen, we're not doing that again. Over our, you know, we're, we're not going to make those same mistakes. And that directly led to, you know, our military primacy that we have now as a result of that generation of officers saying yeah look we're not we're not making those mistakes again and they took it personally that's how you affect change in 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 uniform and it it doesn't happen as fast as we'd like it um it doesn't happen as clean as we'd like it and again i have respect for the lieutenant colonel for having the courage to say what we were all thinking and he wasn't wrong there are people who need to be held accountable but it's going to be up to the next generation of officers who ascend to that level to make those changes. And it's it's not going to happen through a one man protest.
0: All right. Well, um, I just want to thank you, sir, for, for coming out. I think we really had a really great conversation. I definitely would definitely would like to do this again at some other time. Um, Thank you so much for just the, the inspiration your words have been and just the way that you're, you know, just talking the different, you know, about what you've been through and, and about how, again, it's not something you can read in a book. It's just something that you got to live through. Um, and I, I'm really glad to have met with you. Um, is there anything that you want to end with? Anything that you want to say to anybody out there before we? Well,
1: first of all, thank you again for letting me do this. Um, you know, um, I'll always be a Marine. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the Marine Corps. um I owe more to the Marine Corps than I can ever possibly give back and uh, whatever success I have in life going forward will be directly contributed to, you know, my time in uniform. Uh, So anytime I get the opportunity to give back, you know, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity and uh, uh, I love the Marine Corps, you know, I'll be honest, there were times I was frustrated with our beloved service as we all are sometimes. but yeah, I, I love the Marine Corps. Uh, I love being a Marine. And uh, whenever I get the chance to, to give back, I will. Um, it was an honor and a privilege to serve uh, alongside some of the finest human beings I've ever met. And it was an honor and privilege to to lead Marines in combat. And, um, you know, like I said, there isn't a day that doesn't go by where I don't think about the Marines that, that I didn't bring home uh, or their families. Um, But uh, to say that I'm proud uh, would
0: be an understatement. Amen. Well, thanks a lot, sir. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. Thank you. You do the same.